Hello and welcome to episode 82 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined as ever by my colleague CJ. This month we're covering um, October 2020 and we're going to mainly focus on a whole host of changes to the immigration rules which were introduced in October and mainly come into force in December. There's also some very big cases on long residence, on removal windows, deportation law and fairness in sponsored worker cases and we're also going to talk a bit about EU citizens and naturalisation and basically why the government seems to have a bit of a downer on that. If you um, need to get your CPD, your continuing professional development points, then head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training and you can sign up as a member there and we sort of present this um, with a a quiz so you can um, get your training that way. Okay, CJ, over to you. Yes, Statement of Changes to the Immigration Rules, HC813 is where we start. And within that, the changes that the Statement of Changes brings in for work visas. Uh, This is part of what the government is calling the new points-based immigration system. And the flagship visa for sponsored workers, Tier 2 General, is being scrapped as of the 1st of December. And instead, we have the Skilled Worker Visa, capital S, capital W. Uh, They aren't all that different, though. Uh, You will still need an employer to sponsor you. There are skill thresholds and minimum salaries. So if you take Tier 2 General as the starting point, what are the main differences with Skilled Worker? And I've got three important differences. Uh, Number one, you can switch onto Skilled Worker if you're already in the UK uh, on most other types of visa and just a short list of exceptions including visit visas, which you can't switch from. Uh, Number two, there are multiple ways to earn enough points to qualify for a skilled worker. Uh, Only six different ways, it's true, but that's five more than there were under Tier 2 General. So a bit more flexibility there. Uh, And number three, there is no more resident labour market test. So employers no longer need to advertise a job within the UK before they can sponsor someone from overseas to do it. Uh, So those are my big three, Colin. Uh, What's your assessment of the, the work visa changes? Yeah, it looks, broadly speaking, pretty welcome, I think, um, which is a, a pleasant thing to be able to say. But but there's, there's two provisos to that that really sort of stood out um, as I was going through these, picking through these changes. One is that there's, there's often a bit of a kind of uh, disjunct between what we immigration lawyers think and what not to put too fine a point on it, normal people think. Um, so, um, and this, this comes up with, um, journalists, you know, speaks to journalists fairly frequently. And, you know, what I think of as being, um, pretty routine, they're quite often absolutely horrified by it because I've kind of been inured by 20 years of, of dealing with the home office and, and so on. Um, and, and that's possibly the case here as well. Cause of course the, the big headline change here is the end of free movement. And the fact that any employer who wants to employ um, foreign workers is going to have to get a sponsor license. And just, you know, we're saying, well, actually, that's going to be a bit easier than it was and stuff. But just the scale of change that that involves and the number of employers who are going to have to apply for these sponsor licenses. And, you know, you were looking at the stats, I think, in a previous blog post, and they they actually haven't yet basically done so. Um, And then the level of bureaucracy that they have to deal with, even with these slightly streamlined processes, is just going to be huge. Um, So that that is going to be, you know, a really major change. And then, of course, also the the application fees that go with that for migrants, plus the immigration health surcharge and so on. That's actually really substantial changes. Um, So we're, we're sort of saying... Well, you know, this looks a little bit better than it used to be, but actually that ignores possibly the main point, which is that just a lot more people are going to be exposed to this 
um, well, basically to our world of immigration law than, than was previously the case. And the, the, the second sort of big standout point is, um, I, th- I think it's quite interesting. Jo says this a couple of times in her, in her blog post. We just don't really quite know how the Home Office is going to be enforcing some of this. So it's not completely clear, she points out, how the Home Office will assess what the genuine vacancy is and a few other things like that. And I kind of get my, my suspicion is it'll be a bit like right to rent, where there's a kind of general requirement, but the Home Office doesn't actually enforce it other than against people it doesn't like, basically, or people it comes across opportunistically who are likely to be the kind of people it doesn't like. So it's not really intended to be almost, it's not really intended to be a universal law that everybody sticks to. It's more supposed to be usable as and when the Home Office likes in a selective way. And another word for selective is discriminatory. And, and you know, there, 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 there's some potential issues to, to come up there, I think, in the future about the way that the Home Office is actually going to apply this in practice. And we might well hope that there'll be a sort of standoffish approach to start with as everybody gets their head around what they're having to do. Um, but you know, the Home Office doesn't have a terribly good reputation for, for being reasonable about stuff. So um, we can expect problems to develop uh, as time goes by, I'd have thought. Yeah, I suppose they've got a bit more of a positive reputation for being reasonable when it comes to the points-based routes and sponsored workers and people who aren't on the kind of family human rights track. So I suppose that might militate towards a more kind of light-touch approach, certainly in the initial months as it beds in. Maybe, although Mr. Pathan or Pathan may beg to differ. He's, his case will come to at the end, um, Supreme Court dealing with the way that a tier two skilled worker was treated rather unfairly. So, um, yeah, not, not everybody benefits from that approach. That's, that's true. Well, we'll, we'll get to Mr. Pathan's case, but let's, uh, continue our look at the statement of changes. And there is also a thing, changes to do with the rules on English language ability a new section of the rules called Appendix English Language. And this only applies to certain routes initially. So some routes will still be governed by uh, the existing English language uh, provisions, which may be confusing. But for those routes that are governed by Appendix English Language, it's an improvement, uh, we reckon. Um, For example, if you are extending a visa or applying for settlement and you've taken an English language test before, uh, you should now be able to just tell the Home Office look at my previous English language test score, uh, which uh, Alex, who wrote this up, says that is possible at the moment, but now you actually stand the chance of working that out from actually reading the rules because it's clearly expressed uh, and hats off to them for that. Uh, Other changes, you're exempt now from taking English tests if you've been in the UK as a secondary school student and you passed GCSE or A-level English or the Scottish equivalent which is uh, a welcome outbreak of common sense. And as I say, this this appendix only applies to four routes at the moment, but we hope it'll eventually apply across the board and the old English language uh, provisions will will drop away. So I guess on this, you know, again, this is part of the drive for simplification of the rules and uh, seems like some success on that front. Yeah, it it all looks pretty good, doesn't it? Um, And poor Alex, she'd written this huge briefing for us on the English language requirement only a couple of weeks ago. And then, um, 
yeah, um, it, it all gets um, changed, doesn't it? But yeah, the, the really welcome changes on the um, previous tests at the same level being reusable effectively and, and on um, GCSE or A-level English. Um, and Alex herself had picked up, I think before the, um, the statement of changes actually, that some of the application forms had already been changed. Um, and that rather jumped the gun, including the naturalization, um, form. So it, it, that, yeah, as far as we know, actually, if you, if you do attempt to, to follow the, the, the naturalization form and rely on GCSE, you're actually going to get refused because we think there's a sort of statutory requirement that, 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 hasn't been it hasn't been changed yet but um it looks like they might be unifying this across the board for all of the different things including naturalization in due course and that's 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 what i sort of took away from that so again that that's a welcome bit of simplification so you don't have different requirements um, applying a different route yeah i think eventually what will happen is every uh visa category within the rules will point to appendix english language um at the moment it's only four routes but that should should eventually be standardized so let's talk uh about the homeless uh statement of changes also affects them or or more specifically rough sleepers the home office in the past tried to round up eu citizens in particular who were found rough sleeping and send them back to poland or portugal or wherever it might be uh, that was found to be in breach of eu law but now EU law is no longer a restraint. Uh, so now we have a rule as part of the statement of changes specifically targeting rough sleepers. And I'll quote it in full. It says, permission to stay may be refused where the decision maker is satisfied that a person has been rough sleeping in the UK. Where the decision maker is satisfied that a person has been rough sleeping in the UK, any permission held by the person may be cancelled. And that's it. So if nothing else, it's very clear and short and nicely drafted. So that's you know, <laughs> something. Um, but can't, like, why is it so controversial to revoke someone's permission if they're rough sleeping? The British state has no obligations to look after these people, surely? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a mystery why the Home Office is so so keen on this, actually, because I mean, if, if you stand back from this for a second and look at the stats on removals, you know, the number of removals has been going down and down and down. Um, and also immigration detention is being less and less used actually in the, over the last few years and this is sort of pre-pandemic um which all is is all sort of interesting and and perhaps good but in that case why would you be so um sort of keen on on deporting and enforcing removal of rough sleepers because it does seem to be a very low form of social harm if social harm at all even by people who who think that is a bad thing um so yeah it's a bit of a mystery why why the home office is so keen on this and there's my suspicion is that this is about basically continuing to target EU citizens specifically, because um, there's a lot of destitute migrants in the UK. You know, the Home Office has followed this approach of reducing removals, making it much harder for people to satisfy the rules with the fees and with the complexity. Um, and you know, inevitably, that's one of the things I bang on about in the in, in my book, Welcome to Britain. You've got this, you know larger unauthorized population who are cut off from support and they're hit by the hostile environment. So there's a lot of people who are potentially affected by this, but home office policy seems to be not to bother to remove them. So why, why introduce these new rules? Um, and I, I just don't really have an answer to that. Um, it's certainly, you know, uh, unpleasant. It, it's arguably cruel. It's probably disproportionate as well in sort of normal common sense language sense of that term as opposed to sort of eu law or something which which disappears soon 
Um, so yeah, it, it's a it's a bad change, and it's also a slightly weird change as well. I think. I think, yeah, it, as you say, it is odd if they're not going to actually enforce the removals that they're going to remove people's permission. But I suppose one explanation that I think uh, Giles Peaker wrote on his uh, nearly legal housing law blog uh, that it, it might be that local authorities' uh, homelessness duties to such people would sort of go away if they were to ring the Home Office and say, can you revoke this guy's permission then we don't have to deal with them as a um in terms of housing them so perhaps that's uh, is an explanation that's quite quite an unpleasant explanation i'm just making the hostile environment even more hostile but not actually removing people that's just it's just crazy public policy that brutally yeah you create a sort of un- underclass if that's not too uh intensive a term to use let's uh move on to hopefully less depressing territory uh yes definitely less depressing because this is uh the special visa for hong kong residents with british national overseas status uh, and this route goes live on the 31st of january and uh, as people probably know it's basically to help hong kong citizens escape the repressive Chinese state uh, without having to apply for asylum. Uh, and we won't go into the chapter and verse of the, uh, the route, but one thing that comes out of John's detailed review on the website is that people with this form of British nationality, British national overseas status, uh, they'll be quite easily able to sponsor family members who don't have BNO status. Not just kids and spouses, but adult relatives who are dependent on the sponsor, adult children living in the same household. So basically the Home Office is trying to make this quite widely available, not only to people who got their British national overseas status back in the 1990s, uh, but their families as well. Yeah, um, which which is great. But it does beg the question, why treat this particular category of, of British national uh, and, and migrant um, differently to other migrants and other British nationals who have to jump through all sorts of ridiculous um, sort of requirements and, and simply can't quite often and end up with separated families. So it, 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 it does beg that question. Um, very welcome to see such low application fees. Um, as, as John points out, the application fee for these is, is um, what's £180 for a two and a half year visa or 250 for a five year visa, which is much, much lower than other um, application fees, which again does slightly beg the question of why, um, you know, why this category is being treated slightly differently. Although um, there's still the immigration health surcharge, which is, which is huge, um, especially if you're bringing some of those family members who, who are potentially included within the, within the route. So it, it, it's really good news, but it, it does, I think, pose some questions about, um, the treatment of other, um, categories of migrants and, and, and British national. Yeah, absolutely. If uh, you can't design a high-profile route along normal lines because there'd be such an outcry, then that does suggest something about uh, the normal approach. But um, let us round off our statement changes review and look at Appendix V for visit visas, and that is also changing from the 1st of December. Uh, Zina Luchawa from Laura Devine makes her free movement debut with her analysis of this. Um, members that ever can read it on the website. And partly the Appendix V changes are to do with this simplification drive, uh, but there's also some substantive changes. And again, I've got three examples. Uh, number one, there's added flexibility on the purpose of your visit. So it's now possible for the main purpose of the visit be- to be for a study. Obviously, if you want to stay for 
long term you'll need a proper student visa but a short course uh, you can now use the visitor routes uh, number two some of the grounds for refusal have been effectively downgraded from mandatory to discretionary which is better for applicants However, number three, it's now easier to be refused if you have a criminal conviction. Uh, Zena says there's a pretty much a blanket rule now of a sentence of 12 months or more for any criminal offence, no matter how long ago, no matter where it was, uh, will mean you can't enter the UK as a visitor. And Colin, I, I know you've been interested in visit visas for some time. Uh, might even be an ebook on freemovements.org.uk that people can purchase for a low, low price. Uh, but what do you make of these uh, changes? Yeah, that, that ebook um, hasn't been updated for a little while, but I think I, it's still current in the, the last version, at least, of, uh, of, of this uh, appendix. Um, yeah, and the changes look broadly pretty welcome. I, it's, not as, it's not what I'd hoped for, though. I have to say I'd hoped that they'd have looked at a much, much simpler um, drafting of the rules, going back to something much more akin to the old visitor rules. Um, and the, the list of permitted and prohibited activities just seems... I think bonkers. Um, I, I can't understand why some people at the Home Office seem to be so obsessed about um, prohibiting certain activities. And it leads to a huge level of complexity in the rules for no really obvious um, sort of benefit or, or outcome. Uh, yeah, I still think there are some people at the Home Office who are really obsessed by Sri Lankan amateur sportsmen and just have a real down on them. I was wondering um, when the cricketers or, would uh, come off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm obsessed, but but there you go. But it, it's just, um, you know, the, the, it does seem like a lot of drafting for very, very little purpose, frankly, and you could really simplify those rules if you if you got rid of that. But obviously the Home Office has not decided to go down that road. Uh, let's talk case law, and the first case on our list is people have probably heard of already. It was a pretty big deal. The BBC covered it and everything. It was to do with Home Office policy on removing people from the UK, and specifically what are called removal windows. Uh, so this is about how much notice people get that they're about to be booted out, uh, essentially. So under the removal window policy, the Home Office will say, uh, right, we're giving you 72 hours notice. And once those 72 hours are up, we're going to remove you within the next three months without any further warning. So your removal window is this three-month period where you're on notice that you could be removed at any time. This has been controversial, and the challenge to the removal window policy came before the Court of Appeal in the case of FB Afghanistan 2020 EW CA Civ 1338. And what the court found is that the policy is unlawful, uh, basically because three months isn't long enough for people to try to sort out their immigration status sort of comprehensively. They might immediately make an application after getting their notice, but the Home Office might refuse that application during the removal window and immediately remove the person, which denies them the right of access to court to challenge the refusal. And the court said that created, quote, a real risk of denial of access to justice, end quote. Uh, Colin, did you want to add anything on, on the court's reasoning or, or the impact of the case? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I wrote this one up myself. I mean, it's, it's an important case on access to the court, um, but it, it doesn't actually lead to any immediate change in policy because the removal window policy was effectively suspended earlier in the litigation anyway. Um, and I think Home Office um, policy since then has been to carry on providing a date and time of removal. Um, I, the court says that the Home Office doesn't have to do that, actually. Um, you know, removal window policy is potentially lawful as long as 
um, the Home Office gives people enough time to challenge a refusal, which, which they don't at the moment. Um, so we may well see an end to the policy, uh, sort of interim policy of providing date and time of removal uh, at some point in the not too distant future. Um, but we'd also see a tweak where the Home Office um, guarantees that they won't remove within a certain period of refusing an application. And that would give people enough time, the Home Office says, uh, in order to, to bring a challenge to court. So, yeah, w- w- watch this space. We will turn now to an issue which saw, I think, the biggest ever one-day readership on free movements uh, of all time. 99,000 page views on the 8th of October alone, uh, most of them reading John's article, which was entitled, It Just Got Even More Difficult for EU Nationals to Get British Citizenship. How so? Well, one of the legal requirements for naturalising as British is that the person be of good character. And Home Office policy on what indicates bad character is being in breach of the immigration laws in the 10 years before applying for citizenship. And if you are an EU citizen who is a student or self-sufficient, maybe a stay-at-home parent, for example, and you didn't have what's called comprehensive sickness insurance, private health insurance or an EHIC card for your home country, then the Home Office considers that you were in breach of immigration laws and so of bad character and so you won't get citizenship. And that's a real problem uh, for people, Colin, as, as just that like volume of readers alone indicates it's obviously something that affects a vast number of people. Yeah, it, it does. And it's just bizarre. I just cannot understand what the Home Office is playing at with this. It, it, it's like the, the whole CSI policy um, of requiring EU citizens who are students or self-sufficient to have this uh, either private health insurance or to have a, a European EHIC card, as you say, was only cooked up by somebody at the Home Office in 2011. And before that, UK policy was you didn't have to have anything separate. So it was effectively cooked up in sort of Cameron years of, of trying to, um, basically we had a downer on EU citizens coming to, to, to the UK and all sort of benefit tourism rubbish and so on. And, um, it, it's just been an absolute nightmare for the Home Office since then. Cause I, I don't, I don't think the Home Office really dislikes EU citizens. I think they made a really bad decision and they've made a, a, some really bad decisions since then as well. And they've effectively trapped themselves into this insane policy, which makes it hard for EU citizens to naturalize as British at a time when I think everybody, everybody thinks that it should be made easier, if anything, certainly not harder. Um, so it, it's, it's a really disastrous bit of policy making from the Home Office. Um, and yeah, it, and the, the basic problem is that the Home Office essentially, they, they don't quite, they try to use words to uh, avoid saying this, but essentially they're saying that EU citizens were unlawfully resident if they didn't have CSI. And that makes them of bad character and therefore they should be refused naturalisation. And first of all, you know, they didn't need the CSI. Secondly, it doesn't have to be considered of bad character. And John, John's done a second blog post where he says, look, this is actually easily fixable. A lot of this um, is within um, sort of home office discretion. Um, and one of the, the big problems that we've got from this as well is, I mean, obviously, it's re- just really bad piece of public policy. But the, the other problem is that if you... <laughs> You don't know what will happen if you apply. So if you're potentially affected by this, um, as John goes on to say in the in the um, two blog posts, um, we, we, you, if you seek legal advice, basically on look, can I do I qualify for naturalisation? 
we don't really know what the answer is as as immigration lawyers because the policy from the Home Office um, is very unclear and it just says that discretion can be exercised or may be exercised, but it doesn't say if it if it will be. <laughs> um, so the Home Office could grant an application, but we don't know if they will or not. And of course, the application fee is huge. And so, you know, people are understandably unwilling to to risk losing, you know, over £1,200, I think it is, for, for making such an application. So it's just, it's, it's a really bad bit of policy and it's a really bad situation that EU citizens are in. That might change at some point. Um, the Home Office, I think, is incapable at this point in time of changing itself and backtracking on its own earlier policy decisions. It's kind of caught in its own trap, essentially. Um, I, I suspect they'd be happy to find some sort of way out. Um, but because they defended this policy in court um, uh, and the Court of Appeal in, a, in an earlier case ruled that this this is an ex- a legally acceptable approach, it's, it's very hard for them to do that. But the, um, the EU Commission has launched infringement proceedings against the UK because of its CSI policy. I think there is, I remember talking to um, somebody at the Commission about this a few years ago, I think there is another country like Sweden or somewhere or Spain, which has got a sort of similar kind of a, a approach and where I think the Commission has also been pursuing um, infringement proceedings as well. So I think there's a couple of cases that might uh, reach the, the the European Court of Justice at some point on this. And hopefully we'll we'll get some common sense from then. At that point, the Home Office will be able to say, OK, yeah, we're, we're changing the law now. Um, but, but until that happens, you know, this is a real problem. Yeah, a lot of people left in limbo, I guess, because they're waiting to see how this discretion will pan out and, and maybe delaying citizenship applications in the meantime, which is a shame. Let's go to long residence. And the context here is that if you stay in the UK lawfully for 10 years, even if it's on a variety of different visas, uh, you can apply for indefinite leave to remain. Uh, there are, however, issues with gaps in that 10-year lawful residence, uh, essentially putting people back to square one, having to start their 10 years all over again. And the Court of Appeal issued something of a bombshell ruling last year where they said even a single day of overstaying effectively would restart the clock for people. And that's even though 14 days of overstaying is usually overlooked under paragraph 39E of the rules. So 14 days for sort of normal overstaying purposes, but zero days overlooked for for long residence purposes. But happily, the Court of Appeal has now thought about it again. And in the case of Hawk and others, 2020 WCA Civ 1357, uh, they have reversed that finding from last year, which is good. Uh, your thoughts, Colin? Um, not many, frankly. I mean, it, it, I, I, it's 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 a very complicated issue. It's not one that's sort of easily amenable to podcast analysis, frankly. Um, but this is you know, the, the the headline is that this is good news for those who are making ten year residence applications and have short gaps because this opens the door to them potentially qualifying. It doesn't mean that they do qualify, but it, it potentially means that they do. Contrary to a previous um, previous ruling from the Court of Appeal, and it's kind of um, Lord Justice Underhill is getting this kind of Mr. Fix-It reputation with the immigration rules. It's kind of, you know, here on long residence and also on deportation and unduly harsh, he's basically reversed previous court of appeal rulings, which were causing um, serious problems. And he's very critical here of, of the Home Office and um, and also the immigration rules separately, um, pointing out that the Home Office seems to have no reliable mechanism for reaching a considered and consistent position on what its own rules mean. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's just a, it's another bit of disaster area where the Home Office had succeeded in convincing another panel of the Court of Appeal 
that the Home Office was right, only for the Home Office to then basically change their mind um, later on and realise that that was a really bad idea. It's, it's just, it's really rubbish rule drafting, rubbish litigation, rubbish policy making. Um, and, um, you know, as as Nick says, what the hock? Yeah, one of our more dreadful puns. I think I'll free move into it. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not a classic. That one is it. It's not a classic. <laughs> uh, the the worse the better. I think uh, when it comes to puns. Uh, let's go to deportation. And we spoke last time about the really major decision in the case of HA Iraq and the change to the legal test for what makes us unduly harsh to deport certain foreign national offenders. I won't recap that again, but we just want to note that the Court of Appeal has kind of doubled down on that finding, confirmed this new post Haiti Iraq approach. And that's the case of AA Nigeria 2020 EWCA Civ 1296, uh, which I think is fairly significant, Colin, just because I think we were wondering on the last episode whether Haiti Iraq would definitely stick or maybe it would need a Supreme Court ruling before we could be definitive that there's been a change but this judgment suggests that the court of appeal kind of knows what it wants out of this area of law yeah and and um yeah it's, it's just really good news in deportation cases it's a much more um you know rational approach to um the the rather rather controversial frankly um test that has been set by parliament in this area and um yeah it does as you say it confirms really that ha iraq is is the new approach it's the new normal from um from the from the court of appeal and i've already used this in in some of my drafting so um you know one of my cases we'd won a deportation case on um some grounds but lost on others home office have appealed as ever they seem to get permission very easily so we're we're cross appealing on 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 this issue and um it you know it, it does beg the question how many cases um went through under the old approach and have ultimately um been dismissed and i wonder what can happen in those cases and whether they might be resurrected in some way now that we know that um you know they were decided under bad law essentially and i i don't really have a a good answer to that. All I can do is kind of pose the question. Question worth posing, certainly. Uh, um, finally, on this deportation issue, I just want to flag a potentially helpful summary of where we're now at with this unduly harsh test in uh, a different recent case, uh, KB Jamaica 2020 WCA Civ 1385. And paragraph 15 of that judgment is maybe worth a look uh, for those uh, handling such cases. And finally, for this podcast, you mentioned at the start, Colin, this Supreme Court decision involving Mr. Pathan, and who was a sponsored worker whose um, employer lost their right to sponsor him. Uh, the Home Office didn't tell Mr. Pathan that and just refused his visa extension. And the Supreme Court found by a majority that this was uh, unfair, so unfair as to be unlawful. But it seemed to split quite badly on the consequences of that finding in terms of what actually happens to Mr. Patan. Only two judges, and I'm just going by your write-up, Colin, two judges suggested he should be granted leave to remain as a result, two out of five. So, and the other three judges had different solutions. So maybe not a particularly helpful decision in the end. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what's unfair. It's the Home Office sending out a massive new statement of changes in one week and then you being away and the Supreme Court issuing a massive 
split decision on the Friday um, and leaving me to cover it all. Um, no, I, this was, you know, look, looking at this, um, I think it came out on the Friday, I think. I, I ended up putting the post out late on Friday. I, I, maybe I've misremembered that. But um, it's a it's an unusually complex um, Supreme Court case. And my write-up really skimps on the public law aspects of it, frankly. I've really just focused in on the, the immigration consequences. Um, but I, I can't remember the last time I saw a Supreme Court judgment that was so bizarrely split and divided because as you say two judges decide one thing two judges decide another thing and then one judge decides something completely different so what is you know what is the the consequence and i I think actually if you sort of follow it through and sort of try and apply some some logic to it i think the outcome is moderately clear and it's that basically somebody in mr pethan's position has to have proper notice of the withdrawal of the sponsor license and whether that takes the form of a delay between him being notified of that um, withdrawal of the sponsor license and a decision being made on his um, application or it comes in the form of granting leave doesn't really matter as long as he has proper notice of it. Um, so, you know, the Home Office usually goes for the, the minimum viable, often less than minimum viable kind of uh, possibility. So I imagine it would simply be delaying notification of, of the decision of his case. We don't also know how long, um, he would have to have of notice. Um, you know, in student cases, they get three months and there is some authority for suggesting three months. Um, that's the source. No, well, sorry, 60 days. Um, like two months. Um, but that, then they don't, the, the, the Supreme Court doesn't say that it's got to be 60 days. So it, it could be a much less period potentially. Um, and we'll just have to wait and see what the Home Office says. And this, this doesn't apply. This doesn't arise that often in practice. Um, it does, it does come up. And of course, it will come up more after Brexit when more employers have sponsorship licenses and the Home Office does start to withdraw more sponsor licenses when employers haven't got clue what they're doing basically with these things. Um, but, um, yeah, it's still very useful where it does apply. Um, and so it, it, good news for, for Mr. Mr. Payton. Also worth pointing out that this case has been going on for so long, um, that I, I, it turns out that although he thought he was, um, living unlawfully in the UK or the home office at least thought he was living unlawfully in the UK because they, um, curtailed his, his visa or rather refused his extension application. Um, it turns out that that refusal of the extension was unlawful and therefore it's still pending. He still has leave under section 3C and therefore he qualifies under the long residence rules, I believe. So, um, ultimately uh, quite a good outcome for him. And one of those really weird cases where, Basically, a, a much later court judgment effectively rewrites what your what your current immigration status is um, years later, and sort of retrospectively determines what your what your status is. So the length of the litigation worked out for worked out positively for him then. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, you know, it does take a long time to get to Supreme Court. So that's a nice nice note to end on. Hopefully, and that's all from us this month. So we'll be back next month. Goodbye. <laughs>